0: This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and uh, I record this on the in the final day, the final two days of the Edinburgh Fringe Festival 2017, in which I'm broken, my voice is cracked and uh, my, uh, my spirit, however, <laughs> remains very strong after an excellent festival. More on that later. For now, though, uh, this is an episode recorded, I mean, it seems like a lifetime ago, but it was uh, only a month at the Montreal Just for Laughs Comedy Festival, uh, at which I had a wonderful time and thank you very much to Zoe Rabnett and uh, everyone who brought me out there and uh, everyone who made it so much fun uh, and made this recording so much fun uh, as I bring you this episode uh, live from that festival with none other than an exceptional comedian, a political comedian, someone really invigorating to talk to, very, very funny, and um, I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation with W. Kamau Bell. I'm absolutely thrilled uh, with today's guest, so I would like to ask you to welcome, please, with wild enthusiasm, uh, double Emmy-nominated comedian, host, presenter, podcaster, and double comedian. Give it up for
2: W. Kamau Bell. Wow, that's gonna that's gonna sound like a full room when it's on recording.
0: Oh yeah, why would you say that when it was <laughs> sounding like a full
2: room? Um, I mean, it's a room that holds eighteen thousand people, and there's nine thousand people here.
0: Yeah, okay. So I so mm-hmm.
2: relatively speaking, yeah.
0: I've only ju- we've only just properly met. Uh, I saw your show the other night and was uh, struck by not only how tall you are, but how well you fit this enormous chair in which I'm <laughs> sat like a little kind of leprechaun scamp, and it actually suits you in a kind of Game of Thrones
2: no, way. No, I feel like this is the first chair I feel good in. in
0: my life. <laughs> How was the show? How was the show the uh, the other night? You've been working at La Chapelle here at Montreal yeah. Comedy Festival. Yeah. Where are you in the lifetime of that show, in the life of that material?
2: Uh, probably in the middle of it. I mean, I don't really do as much stand up as I'd like to do, so this is like. Uh, so, I probably in last fall, I went out on a tour to sort of start putting stuff together. And I was like, at that point, I was like, I don't know if I have anything. And then you go, Oh, I have a few things. Okay. So, I'm like, I feel like I'm in the middle of like, there's a couple big pieces that I know are like, Well, I'll be, this will be, I just need to finish these off. And then like little things you keep working on. Okay. Yeah. Plus, um, I'm topical. So, there's things where you're like, Well, this is fun now, but it may not be fun in three months. Yes. I mean, and <laughs> you're not just These people may all be dead or they <laughs> or there may not be in America. It's all up in the air right yeah, now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I
0: noticed you've got one of the best well, two of the best Sean Spicer jokes I've heard, and that must be bittersweet.
2: Ah, uh, yeah, just when I was, just when I was like, this joke is, pr- oh man, come on. Yeah. Luckily, though, it's, just, it's kind of a, like such a cast of characters. You can do that thing that comedians do. Remember Sean Spicer? You know. Yeah. Thing? Yeah. Well, <laughs> let's just look back at the
0: last two years of Trump. Here's a list of everyone who's yeah, been. Yeah,
2: no, it's, a, it's a yeah, mess. we'll see, we'll see. And you have to just when you write topically, you have to be prepared to let stuff go, even if you don't want to, because you don't want to be the guy who tells. I remember back in the day, I you don't know if you had, this is like so many cross cultural references, I don't know. There's a thing called Taco Bell, we all know that? Okay, there was a, in the States, I know it was all over, there was a Taco Bell dog, uh, and his catchphrase was Yo Kiro Taco Bell. And for a while, every comedian in America had a Yo Kiro Taco Bell commercial joke, and I had one. And at some point, I realized I did it one too many times <laughs> on stage in front of people, and I learned a lesson. Don't be the last guy to do the joke. Oh, <laughs> what was be, the, be the first guy to drop the joke. Yeah. What, what was the joke? I and have you... no memory, and I'm not talking about it anymore. Okay, great. Co- I'd rather really talk about when I was molested than talk about it. Uh,
0: I was trying to trick you into being the last guy to tell the... Uh... No, nope, <laughs> nope.
2: I learned my lesson.
0: So this, for people who are less familiar, for people listening to this at home, uh, who are less familiar
2: for with... Most of the world
0: for most of the world,
2: like the very vast majority of the world, yes.
0: So tell us what are your uh, what are your obsessions as a as a comic? Okay, I never okay. like <laughs> to ask. I never like, <laughs> yeah, like As a comedian,
2: it, now we're getting into something. Well, <laughs> I, um, ne-
0: I never like to ask, but you know, comedians hate that question of just like. So what kind of thing do you do? But you yeah. you're, you are you uh, are a you're pretty obsessive. You're pretty specific about yeah, the no, stuff. Yeah, I, you I do. like
2: what I like, and I hate what I hate, and then everything else I don't give a shit about. Uh, <laughs> I sort of like, so I really like writing topically because it's fun because if you can get the right topical joke, like, so I write, I tend to write pop politics, but just, you know, yeah, generally just current events. So I like writing topically because if you can nail a topical joke in a way that nobody else has, you sort of get, feels like the audience gives you bonus points for that. Like when mm-hmm. they're like, oh, that's, yes, that's what I was trying to think about this thing that everybody's talking about right now. So that's one of my obsessions. Uh And then. <laughs> like making white people uncomfortable, which is weird in a room of this many white people. We'll get to some uncomfortable things later. Thank you, two black people. Uh... There is,
0: uh, there's a third black person waving at you.
2: Okay. Could, could you three sit together so I can just look in one spot? That'd be easier. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, there's a black guy over there. Yeah. Actually, now you're surrounded white people. There's... <laughs> So I like doing that. What I just did there, that yep. I, 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 I just like that feeling in the room. People are like, "Hey, are you talking about me?" Yeah, I am. And um, uh, I like really like breaking down. Like I just, I love talking about race and racism. To uh, to the even Chris Rock said, "You talk about it too much." <laughs> so, is that right? Really? Yeah, he, yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's like, I talk. People think I talk about it a lot. I talk about like fifteen percent. You talking about eighty-five percent. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm working up to eighty-six. <laughs> But yeah, it's just that's the stuff I care about. I love sort of figuring out ways to craft jokes that that are punching up. I just love jokes that. So yeah, I love. I also love appearing. I don't. I don't mind appearing dumb or like I didn't know something on stage. I don't. You know, I think a lot of times with comics we try to be the experts all the time, and I don't mind being like I don't know. Maybe I said the wrong thing. I, I like that too. Love the, the vulnerability. I think
0: that gives your comedy in particular a real. It's be- uh, interesting you say that. That's not something I had kind of noticed myself, but I completely agree with you that you are in, in your podcast as well, in politically reactive, in the other podcasts that you do. Um, you are happy to put your hand up and say, "Okay, we need to, we need to actually talk about this," mm-hmm. and that stops you from. Uh, I'm almost going to try and pronounce the word proselytizing. Is that I've only ever seen it written down? Uh, proselytizing. Proselytizing. <laughs> thank you, but I've <laughs> for, never used it out loud before.
2: So for a second, I was like, "That may be a word I don't know." Yeah, I was yeah. prepared. <laughs> Say, i didn't know that word but i was like i'm gonna but, take a shot
0: you know there is there is a kind of preaching element to you there, there is a rhythm you're very yeah. good at rhythm and tone and pausing and your line about the 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 uh a judge being too racist for alabama yes you know that that is like your could you just give us that line how you
2: oh yeah so i mean it's like it's it's one of my favorite things to do it's a norm Macdonald thing where you the, the, the joke is just the thing. You're not, it's not the joke is sort of it's just saying the thing. There's not yes. like really a punchline there. Yes. It's just about the, how you say it. And I learned that from Norm Macdonald uh, or watching him. But it's like so Donald Trump appointed Jeff Sessions to be the Attorney General of the United States, uh, and it, the whole idea is people say Donald, Some some people like to say Donald Trump's not racist, and I'm like it's clear he's racist. Jeff Sessions was thought to be too racist to be a judge
3: in Alabama. <laughs> <laughs>
2: My voice totally gave out in the middle, but yeah, you get it. That's the punchline. It's just screaming Alabama. People go, ah, like if you just say in Alabama, that's not, that's maybe funny, but it's really the fact that I feel like I have to ridiculously push it through. And then I usually do think I tap on the mic, like, can you hear me? And I scream it again.
0: <laughs> so you have you absolutely have all of those gears of being able to you know, to corral an audience. Yes, but that didn't work with uh, so And indeed a table. But you uh, but you also, as you were saying, with your ability to put your hands up and say, look, this is complex and I don't know the answer. That's yes. like a really in- interesting, it's a really invigorating combination of skill sets.
2: Yeah, because I think I I learned Early on, that people would always tell me how smart I was on stage, and which is one way of saying you're not that funny. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's
2: that that's is, the first thing when people just focus on that. that There's just... such
0: a comedian response. <laughs> that's, that's no, it, it is. It's like,
2: you're really smart. I mean, you're like real. I love how smart you're on stage. Wish there were more punchlines. Uh, and then I sort of really know that in my life, in the crowd I hang around in, none of my friends hang out with me because I'm the smart guy. Like, I'm the funny guy. So on some level, I was like, I don't mind saying the things I think and people perceiving those as being whatever, but I also have to give access to the fact that I'm the guy who's always asking his friends, like, wait, can you explain that to me? Mm-hmm. Or the guy who's like, I better be quiet because I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. Like, that's, that's my resting rate in life. Like, people are having conversations. I'm sitting back like, wow, this is, okay, we'll see what happens. So, yeah, so I just felt like I need to give voice to that on stage. And I think that it's, like, my favorite comedian of all time is Bill Hicks. Uh Yeah, yeah exactly. Three. Oh, we're wow. in North America. <laughs> the The
0: usual audience of this podcast are not the sorts of people who would cheer at the name of a person, but we can do it here, Bill
2: Hicks. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, and Bill was very... Uh, you know, also, the thing about Bill, I think we have to remember, he died when he was 32. I think a 40-year-old Bill Hicks would have been funnier than a 32-year-old Bill Hicks. Yeah. But, and he was great at 32, he was my favorite. But he was very sure of himself a lot of times. He would appear goofy, but he would get very... And I sort of learned on... Just because I think he's my favorite, I can't... I'm not that guy. I'm not the guy who's going to, like, be railing against the thing. I have, there are moments of that, but I really have to leave room for the, like, I have no fucking idea.
0: There's an interesting tension there for me between the ideas of you telling peop- telling an audience how it is and enjoying making a predominantly white audience or the white people in the audience yeah. make feel uncomfortable and... The fact that you're not a hundred. I mean, there are certainly elements of
2: your. No, there are things that I, there are things I will like. I would say I, there are things I will stand on the table for. And be like, this is just how it is, and that's how I feel. You know, and this is I believe this to be a hundred percent true. But yeah, so there I'm not saying I'm I'm not on stage like, I don't know guys, maybe racism isn't wrong. I'm not doing that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. There's so many factors you have to decide. No, but there but there's I just also feel like there are like times where like I've told stories about like talking to my daughter about transgender people and in the middle of the conversation realizing I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. Yes, it's like so. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Where I'm like, and I and I tell the story on stage because I was like in the middle of the conversation, trying to like explain this to my daughter, and realizing I really don't know. And it ends with me going, "Do you have an email address? Can I email you some articles?" Yeah, okay. <laughs> She's five, so she does not have an email. So,
0: address. so the, the the almost like the the phrasing of that material, the argument that you're having is uh, like the point that you're making is we should try and engage with it, and it's okay to not know the answers. At, yeah, at it's okay.
2: and in America. We do a thing where that's how we pronounce it now (laughs) where people think if they read the tweet about it, then they know the whole story. (laughs) Like, so a lot of people will be like, based on very limited knowledge, they will stand on tables and and defend things that are just not even that weren't even tweeting about in the first place. And so for me, it's like I have to really be careful about not doing that. Have you slipped up in the past? Have you? Oh, yeah. I'm just assuming I have I can think about it but yes sure I <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I slipped up in the past about what Yes, let you finish the question
0: Um, just in terms of like like I think at the moment the speed of discourse and in, certainly in the areas in which you operate as a political comedian as someone who's very much engaged with what's happening right now on Twitter what's happening right now in the news the speed of the discourse by which for example trans issues have gone in the last five years from the being the last
2: three days in America yeah really.
0: exactly <laughs> yeah so uh, have there been issues where, like, is there anything in your material that you might have looked back from a show 10 years ago and thought, I wouldn't have said that now?
2: Oh, yeah. I, in my in my book that came out uh, last year, The Awkward Thoughts of W. Kamal Bell, I think they even sell it in Canada. Uh,
0: I wanted to read it, but it's not available on Kindle.
2: Is, is it not? No. no. Yes, it is. Maybe uh, not in the UK or something. Oh, uh, maybe that's it. Okay. Yeah, because we don't, you know, it's too surreal for the UK. It's too real. <laughs> <laughs> it's very similar to Frederick Douglass's first... No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> somewhere between that and Malcolm Max's autobiography it's really people think it's like if, if ta Coates was good that's how people describe it <laughs> I knew white people know who he was okay uh so no it's not any of those things but in the book I write an extended apology to Condoleezza Rice about a joke that I told that ended up on Comedy Central in which I called Condoleezza Rice ugly which the premise of the joke was that she was evil, which at the time, I would still stand behind that joke because he was working with George W. Bush, but the extended riff on the joke ended up just making, making fun of her looks, which that's something that, like, a friend of mine, year, like, two years later who had met me after I'd recorded it, my friend Martha Reinberg, I've talked about before in various things, like, I was like, my, it's like this new person I've become friends with, Martha's a white woman, she's a lesbian, she's married to another white woman who's also a lesbian because otherwise it'd be weird. Uh, LAUGHTER They have two adopted black daughters uh, and so they live in Oakland. They moved to Oakland because they wanted their family to feel more comfortable. They lived in Maine and they're like, we can't raise black daughters in Maine because that's like a reality show at best. (laughs) Not a lot of black people in Maine. So they moved to Oakland where there's more black people and they, uh, like, so I met this new friend Martha. We became friends very quickly. Martha's one of those friends that she talks and I just sort of get quiet because I don't know what's going on. And so... I was like, oh, you!" Got she was like, oh, I was like, I want to show you my stand up because I'm a stand up comedian and look at this clip I did on Comedy Central and is it great? And I sort of sent it to her and then I'd hear back from her for days and I would see her and she didn't say anything and I realized there must be something happening here. And when I finally said, so Martha, what'd you think about it? She was like, why did you call Comedy Central ugly? I was like, well, in comedy, <laughs> you don't understand how comedy works. You don't go to comedy clubs. And she's like, it's sexist. Now, And then I had that thing where, like, oh, you think I was sexist? You should see some more people. You know, sort of compare, yep. And she said, you can't compare yourself to the worst elements of people You have to, or to the most extreme elements of the thing. You have to compare yourself to what you want to be for yourself, which stuck with me to this day. And she went very deep very quickly about like, when you call her ugly, you're calling you're calling my daughter ugly. Cause my daughter's black and she has African features. Like Connelly's rice does it's, do you think Olivia's ugly? And it was just like, uh, uh, no. And, She's also like, also, you're partnered with a white woman. How are you going to be a black man with a white woman calling black women ugly? And it was just like, please stop saying things. (laughs) Please stop talking. It was really like, it was basically like, to compare it to Malcolm X, it's the moment Malcolm X is in prison and Elijah Muhammad's ghost shows up. That's what it was. (laughs) I just felt like I was totally just like broken down. And also then like sort of she built me back up and it was like, if you want to do this thing where you're on stage talking about racism and ending racism, because I had a, I've had a one-man show and still do about it, you can't make sexism worse. And then it became great. Yeah, yeah. give it up for Martha. It's, it got the mmm. Mm. And Martha's very good at getting the mmm out of people, even if I just tell what she did. So... And she, that was the f- my first sort of inroads into the idea of what inclusion was and what punching – difference between punching up and punching down is and how that – and comedians do this a lot. Just, like you'll be making fun of one thing, but then you make fun of something else and then to make fun of that thing, and then the thing you're making fun of is actually people are like, we weren't even involved in this first thing. Why are you making – why are you bringing us into this? And those people a lot of times are people that are made fun of a lot, so it's like once again we're being made fun of even though we weren't involved in the thing – that you hated in the first place. And so it became very clear to me that like, when I'm in those positions as a comedian, when I'm like railing against like Trump, if I'm going to compare him to something else, if I'm going to bring somebody else into it, it's got to be something else that's equally worthy of me making fun of. It can't just be like the first thing you think of. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: I was talking to uh, Lisa Traeger yesterday about some of the prevailing attitudes in comedy clubs and in green rooms that she has to work with and deal with. And the fact that there are now loads more women and a lot, I would guess more people of color, but I've certainly noticed in particular, lots more women who are very comfortable uh, as comedians calling out sexism, calling out sexism on stage, calling out sexism in green rooms. Um, Are you in a situation now where you are sufficiently woke on sexism
2: that you're hashtag woke
0: <laughs> that you're like I suppose what I'm asking is when you create new material if you're aware that it's going into difficult places are you gonna do you have a friend to check with do you you know
2: like so is, so yeah, is, yeah, so is next yeah.
0: time it isn't like hey watch this thing that's already oh taped yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I mean
2: first of all there's two things one things are gonna move along so something I'm doing now that I that I vet and think is totally great in a year or two, may easily be like, nope, that's not it, and I think that's okay. I think it's fine. And then if I, as long as I move with the culture, you know what I mean. As long as I move with the, with the, with the people I, that I think are leading the culture in the right direction. So I think that on some of comedy is by its nature sort of pinned to its time, and so you can't, you're not going to keep up. Like you're not going to, you know, the, you know, take my wife, please. Sounds horrible now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like so, and but yet that's a classic joke of comedy. So. I think that like I can't get caught up in that but there are I do uh, yes I do have a friend uh, I married her her name's Melissa uh, and because she's a white woman from like a small town in California and I'm a black dude who grew up in big cities by the nature of our and she's also got a PhD a master's and a, I guess yeah you automatically get a bachelor's when you do all this stuff but yeah <laughs> but yeah she's she's a very studied academic she's she's definitely a feminist definitely works in like in her art as a contemporary dancer and like sort of feminist provider. Art. So there's just the nature of us sitting down to have any conversation, we're coming from different places, and she has been in my life for 14 years. So she has seen different evolutions and stages of my career. So she has a wide breadth of like what I should and shouldn't be doing every time. And because she's a dancer, my stage movement is better. So <laughs> <laughs> so I think about that, like so there's definitely times. Like it's funny, here at the festival we went to go see, uh, bumping mics with, uh, yeah, yeah, with David and Jeffrey Ross. And a of the show was me looking at Melissa reacting to them. Because it's not that she doesn't think things are funny or doesn't think inappropriate things are funny, but she's also got this brain that a lot of people have where she's like deconstructing the thing that's happening. Yeah. And so for me, it was fun to sort of like, I'm, despite what I'm hashtag woke, I can, to- Dave Vettel is one of the greatest comedians of all time. That's just the nature of the game. That's just how it is. I've opened for David Tell when way back in the day. I think his, the way he uses jokes are just the, he, nobody does it, and I can and, and I can laugh at the things that I would not do on stage. Yes, like I can totally be like, ah, <laughs> I can't repeat that joke. You know what I mean? Like because I, as humans, and this thing I get caught up, there is a duality. There is a thing where you're like, I can laugh at this thing. So having said that, there are times when I write jokes and I sort of start to go down that alley, and I go, is it worth going down this alley for this joke? And there's some jokes I have where I'll be like. Yeah, I'll take the hit for this one. And then sometimes I'm like, no, it's not worth it. Let me pull out of it. But it doesn't mean that when I sit down to write, I'm I'm only in my woke brain. I'm also in my animal brain. You know what I mean? And part of humor is doing things that people can't predict. And if you're if you're woke and your woke audience is woke and you're always being woke 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 woke, woke, then it gets really less funny and people start going, "You're so smart." (laughs) <laughs> so you have to be able to surprise them in the same way and surprise myself and sometimes on stage because I write a lot on stage and I'll say things and be like, oh, I didn't know I was going to say that, you know, and I'll say on stage. I didn't, never said that before because it's just about being in the moment and seeing where your sort of animal brain takes you.
0: So this is Kamau. Um, and uh, you can hear how much fun we're having. We'll get straight back to it in just a moment. As I said at the top of the show, I'm in the 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 last gasps of uh, a month-long festival here in the UK, so uh, I won't trouble you for too long. I have very little to say that I haven't said on a variety of stages recently, and I think probably next week's episode I'll do a a proper long debrief and tell you about all the fun things I got up to. I wrestled. Uh, We did Everyone's a Comedian. I'll tell you how that went, and uh, all, all sorts of other exciting things as well but I'm going to save that until I'm back in the real world suffice to say thank you for everyone that is continuing to support the podcast with your donations a couple of people have subscribed on Patreon Uh, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash comcompod I am a little I have to say Patreon is the gap in me getting back to people (laughs) I do try and everyone that emails me info at comedianscomedian.com everyone that donates via PayPal or Moonclerk on either a one-off or subscription basis I do get back to all of you eventually I mean there's a bit of a backlog at the moment but certainly within the month um people on patreon i find it much harder to keep track of uh i get little notifications and they're not immediately clickable and they tend to disappear by the wayside but do know if you're one of my patreon subscribers i value you very highly Mm -hmm. indeed and i will make an effort to spruce that up over the next few months make it a bit more um Uh, contactable Uh, I will be releasing Everyone's a Comedian uh, which is the crowdsourced experiment which went phenomenally well I'm going to give that away to people on the mailing list so uh, if you haven't yet joined the Comedians Comedian mailing list you can do that at ComediansComedian.com and I will endlessly pester you with up to four emails a year I mean normally about two emails a year if further past is anything to go by Um, but you can uh, sign up for that it's fairly clear how to do that at the website and in the next few weeks I shall release Everyone's a comedian unto you, um, probably just in audio form. There is a video, but it was it was quite fun to watch on the on the live feed, but maybe not uh, as amazing as, uh, as being able to listen to it as if it's a gig. What a lot of fun it was, though. So more on that later. Um, and uh, I will talk to you when I'm back in the real world next week. Uh, I think that's everything. Thanks for the donations. I've had some lovely emails and uh, the fringe always brings out people who come up to the show and, uh, and have travelled sometimes a very long way to come and see me. So I'm very grateful to all of you. Um, and also, it's just that time of year when everyone in the UK, at least, is thinking about comedy. So lots of you have sent me some really lovely emails, which I will get back to either in person and or on the show. But it'll be it'll be next week's show. I'll tell you at the end of this episode, everyone that we've got coming up, because I am so excited with the backlog I've been building up over the last uh, five or six weeks. We've just got some absolutely incredible episodes coming your way. So uh, I'll tell you all about them in a bit. Thanks for listening. Uh, Let's get back to this live conversation from the Montreal Comedy Festival, just for laughs, with W. Kamau Bell.
1: A new year is full of surprises.
0: your ability to make yourself vulnerable on stage or to accept that there are Other answers to the questions there that you might not be aware of. Um, I saw a little bit of uh, United Shades of America. Uh, I saw the episode when you go uh, into Chicago and you're talking to some of the gangs and community and you're talking to someone who I'm going to struggle to remember his incredible name, but it might be... Wild Wild the the General. Wild Wild the General, right. (laughs) Wild
2: Wild the General, everybody. (laughs) You don't pronounce the D on Wild. (laughs) This is Wild Wild the General. Oh,
0: it's Wild Wild. Gotcha. Okay, that does make more sense than what i had um, so i thought it was wow wow
2: no no that's a different dude we didn't we didn't have time to talk about
0: it. <laughs> um so you're there is a scene where you are standing with them in the street and they are talking about the fact that they are currently armed and they are protecting you and anything could go wrong at any minute and despite the fact that it looks like a very kind of innocent situation just yeah. with a bunch of guys with slightly itchy hands ready to you know there's <laughs> yeah, r- yeah. a hand near a coat pocket and i think in that and in a later segment where you are present at a, a meeting of different gang leaders, I, I felt that you were kind of visibly vulnerable, like that you felt not out of your depth as a comedian but in
2: a new depth as a... <laughs> out of my depth as a person. As a person, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I don't want to sit here and go, yeah, you were out of your depth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, there was, there, there was a genuine risk happening at that stage. And I think when I approached that show, when I heard that you'd done the show and I was doing some research, um, I expected it to be more of a comedy show than it is. It is mm-hmm. undoubtedly funny, mm-hmm. um, but it is undoubtedly serious and investigative. And I just wanted to talk for, talk to you for a bit about how the, about the difference between which role you play when you are in an environment like that, making an investigative show that is also a comedy show that you're feeling vulnerable and you want to contribute. You want to get on with these people. You want them to trust you. You also want to try and make humor. What's that like?
2: I mean, it's it's learning on the job because the only show that I sort of patented after was Anthony Bourdain has a show called parts unknown. And I like his show. And the thing I like about his show is he's him the whole show. He sort of gets a show. He's a he's a chef. He's lots of based around food and eating. But it really doesn't matter if you like the if you if you like where he's going. He goes to different cities because you you buy in for him. Like he could just be Andy Bourdain at the hotel buffet for an episode. You just want to be like, this is really interesting because he is the thing. that. So for me, the thing that I was doing with the show, is like I just have to be myself in all these situations. And I am a comedian, so that's a part of who I am. And in life, when I'm not on stage, I will talk to people and say funny things. So I'm more being that guy than I am being a stand-up comedian. But the thing that's great is because the shows on CNN, they don't need it to be more they don't have a a standard of comedy they're trying to hit like if it was on a comedy channel they were they were probably like this is really not funny where you sat there staring at the gang members (laughs) looking afraid uh but for (laughs) cnn the cnn viewer it's almost like if it was too funny they would not take it in the same way Hmm. so for me it's like and i'm not even trying to like i'm not making it less funny i'm just being present in the moment with the people i'm talking to so some of the conversations are funnier because in the moment that's what it is and some of the conversations it's about the fact that like I'm the surrogate for the viewer being like oh you're armed with guns okay <laughs> mm. <laughs> oh so I could die or when I saw it, you know that, that I'm just being myself and I really feel grateful that I'm on CNN where they're not there's there's never been a note about make it funnier if anything sometimes they're like we had an episode they're like okay you have to pick one of the fart jokes you can't do both of them <laughs> <laughs> and I had to struggle and go okay like there's those things and, you know, but it's, I really do feel like I get to be myself. And because this is how the shows work The first season, I feel like the first season was like the mixtape. The second season was like the actual album. Like, I feel like I know the show better and now we're being pre-production for the third season. So I think there will be a natural evolution of how I am on the show. And also I'm learning when to be able to be funny with people who are saying serious things and when not to be. You know, so I've learned a lot of times. Like we did an episode with Native American people, Na- Indigenous people of the United States, because you again don't call them Native American; they don't all like that. Learning right here, okay. uh, and at the end of the episode is me going to. We found out that there was these people who lived on the Pine Ridge Reservation, which was one of the most poor reservations in all the reservation system. They their son had just been murdered in gang violence, and somebody was like, "They might be interested in talking to you today about how hard it is to live on a reservation." And like, and they are like, there's a wake at their house right now. We can call and see if they'll let you come. These people had never heard of me, didn't know the show was in town, didn't know anything. And I was like, D- we don't need to do that. <laughs> and But the producer was like, yes, we do. So we called. They said. We walked into their home. There's like that thing that happens where they, it doesn't feel like a wake because people are talking. But you also get – there's like so, there's pictures of them everywhere. And we walk into this house with one camera. And we sit down, and all the people in the house sort of stop talking and looking at us. And we're talking about their son had been killed, and how hard life is on the reservation, and how the country doesn't doesn't accept uh, Native people, and and how uh, we just wish things were better, even though we don't want to live. It's like a really deep conversation within about ten minutes, and and there's no way for me to be funny in this. It's just like I'm just sort of there to be a witness, and sort of there to sort of hold the camera. Like you don't just want to see them; you want to see me watching them on camera. At one point, the mom, son son had died three days earlier. The mom says, do you know why uh, America, she said the white man, do you know why the white man hates Native people? And I said, no, why? And I sat and there was this pregnant pause and goes, because we kicked Custer's butt. (laughs) And the whole room exploded in laughter. Because we had just gone all the way down into gang violence, my son is dead, and she's like, and she goes, we, and she looked at and she goes, we kicked his butt, and they hold a grudge, and then I turned right into camera, and like the cameras right here, I turn and go, yeah, white man, why are you holding a grudge? You got your ass kicked one time just let it go white man i said i'm sorry for swearing let it go and everybody's laughing and we're all and it was just this moment that i like learned so much about how comedy in that moment she needed a way out of this discussion mm. she found the way out and then when she gave me the olive branch the permission to make a joke i was like i'm leading all the way in yeah and the show ends on this moment of of like 10 people laughing about this joke in the middle of this this horrible thing and so I learned a lot in that way about like, yeah, we, humor actually is necessary for these situations.
0: One of, the, one of the gang members that you were talking to, at one point he talks about music and because they're, they're talking about their own responsibilities to their communities in terms of the music they're making and whether it glorifies violence. And one of the gang members says, uh, all music does is, well, all you have to do in music, and he, he means that those of them you know, making, making rap music, all you have to do is you tell them what the problem is and you tell them what the solution is. Oh, yeah. Are there parallels with comedy, with your comedy, or with what comedy can do?
2: I mean, I, the, the thing I think about all the stuff I'm doing, I sort of, I think the thing I realized I liked about podcasting, why I listen to so many podcasts, is to realize, oh, this is the same thing I think I'm trying to accomplish. You're just trying to make people's dinner conversation better. <laughs> 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 like, you're just, like, if you <laughs> aim higher than that, you're really getting into some sanctimonious territory. <laughs> Like, I think that if you can make people's dinner conversations better or the conversations they have in life, that's how you get – that's how they then get to the next place. Like, if they start quoting the jokes I do and then people go, what was that? And you talk about it, all you're trying to do is make – is lubricate conversations. And so I hear for a long time with the United States, people are like – uh, it's me and my mom sit down to watch your show. I make my dad watch it. You know, that's the only time my family gets together. And I didn't make the show for that reason. But I realized what's happening. And this is what I'm being told. They watch the show. And then during the commercial breaks, they talk about what they just saw. And, you know, CNN is not as much as the Trump wants you to leave that. It's not a liberal news network. You know, I live in Berkeley, California. We don't define that as a liberal news network. <laughs> But it does, but my show comes from a place where I am coming from a more liberal, progressive, whatever those words are, place. And so people, like I get these emails all the time. I'm a 75-year-old Alabama living, gun-toting, blah, 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 and I love your show. You know what I mean? Because the way I approach it, it invites them into a conversation they weren't having.
0: Do you feel that you're... You are sufficiently experienced and empowered as a comedian that you're like that you're ready for to deal with Trump, to deal with the presidency, like in the way like if it had happened ten years ago, oh, would yeah, you okay, have felt yeah. less able? Oh
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely, yeah, no, yes. There's, I mean, the, the I think the thing that's important for me about Trump is I have a couple Trump jokes, but really it's about the whole thing. Like I think it can be really easy to get focused on his. He makes fun of himself, like there's no, like, and everybody on Twitter makes fun of him making fun of himself. And as a comedian, I call it, it's like that. It's like the California Gold Rush. It's like you just start grabbing everything, and then you go, "Wait, I just got rocks." Okay. And so yeah. you have to let other people get the rocks. And then for me, the test is. Is this saying something new that that a thousand people didn't tweet? And so for me, the Trump things are very few and far between. I'd rather talk about the whole thing. So, yes, but I do feel I think 10 years ago, I would have been caught up in like just reading his tweets on stage or something, you know, Mm -hmm. something that was like where he sort of is his own punchline. Whereas now it's like you have to find the thing behind the thing.
0: So when you sit down to write, what does that what does that look like? What is your how much writing time do you get when you're putting together? a, I, <laughs> I know have, you're a dad of I have two, two girls. kids, yeah. yeah,
2: six and two and a half. So all my writing is like carrying and walking and watching Doc McStuffins and like in my head, like man, that thing Trump said is there anything there? Like a lot of it is sort of just happening in the background, like a, like a computer that's always on. And so there's things that will happen in my life and things I see, and they just sort of roll around in the back of my head and. I've come to accept the fact because I don't have time to write them down all the time. If I forget them, then they just weren't that good. (laughs) Like comics, get caught up, I forgot the thing. I just sort of, that may be lying. I may be lying to myself, but I just sort of go, well, I just don't remember it. But really, it's like, I'm an only child. So I'm in my head, I was in my head a lot. So I just can, things are just rolling over my head. And then, before I go on stage, there's like I grab like a piece of paper and a sharpie and just write down all the things that I can sort of think of like before I go on stage. And a lot of the writing happens on stage. That's something else I sort of was inspired by with Bill Hicks that you could hear different versions of the same joke because he was always just sort of exploring. David Tell is like that too. He's always sort of adding tags and finding new vistas. And so I that's a, I do a lot of the writing on stage.
0: And are there are there gaps in your ability as a comic? Are there certain things that you you like you obviously have a skill set where you have certain kind of superpowers you're like, "Well, I can definitely do that, yeah. I can definitely hold the crowd that way mm-hmm. um are there what what are the the elements that you think of as your weaker points in your in your skill set?
2: I'm not that funny <laughs> overall <laughs> I think that's actually something I would point to um, Go on, is that, how much is that a joke and how much no, that? I'm not a, I'm not everybody's comedian, like I think that's actually a, a gap in my skill set, I can't go into every room and be like, yeah, wait till you get a load of this, because a lot of people are like, we don't want that oh, good point <laughs> Like, I opened for Bumping mics last night. That's not my crowd. Jeff Ross asked me to a couple times. I love Jeff. I love tell. He said, I told tell. I asked you. And I suddenly felt like, well, if the godfathers of comedy are going to ask me to open for this thing, I'm going to go do it. I did it. I sort of did it, the, my version of what that is. I got laughs. I got off. But nobody was like, he blew a and Jeff Ross off the stage, sure. which wasn't my goal. But it's also like, I just was like... I did my thing, the crowd laughed, but it's not my natural habitat. And those people don't necessarily, they laughed, I'm not trying to put that, they were there for a thing. I'm not the community you can just put into every place. I think that's a
0: huge weakness. I I saw that show last night and it was interesting to see, having seen your show at the The Chappelle a couple of uh, nights previously to go, oh, that Sean Spicer sperm joke, boom. (laughs) The the, the clever, you know, Jeffrey Lord is the Sean Spicer of Kellyanne Conway's, which is an incredible line. Yeah, not as well received. received.
2: And I just sort of, the thing that I was, my wife was at both those shows and she was like, she was just like, yeah, you just held the stage and did your thing. You didn't, like there's times in life I, I would have folded, you know. Did you yeah. did
0: you say when I saw you at the Chappelle Did you do um, a line about how after the Kellyanne Conway line? Did you? Say, I feel like I remember you saying my wife wrote that joke. Is uh, that, that about? That, that was, was or is that about a different one?
2: I think it was about a different one. Because
0: it was I, I, something we rarely discuss on the podcast, but I'm sure that the partners of comedians are often the uncredited editors or certainly in my case, in my comedy life, my yeah. wife is actually a copy editor. And yes. what I've learned to do is not to go to her and say, hey, do you think this idea is funny? But once I've done it 30 <laughs> times on stage, she'll go, it doesn't need that word or that word. Uh, go, yes, yeah,
2: yeah, yes, yes. Yeah, you don't want to like take the idea, unformed idea, because you be like, why would you say any of that? Oh, good point. Yeah. <laughs> no, my wife, I mean... It's funny, I really, Jim Gaffigan's wife is credited as his writer, like on his specials and all this stuff. And I'm really fascinated by that. And then I realized at some point, like, yeah, my wife's doing a lot more than I realized. And then sometimes I would forget that she'd give me punchlines until what would happen is like somebody would tell me they liked a joke. And then that person would walk away and she's like, you know, I wrote that, right? (laughs) And I'm like, no. And then she'll tell me we were in the kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) And so now I'm really, it's sort of fun to think about like jokes that I have that she that she you know it'll be what'll happen is like in the, my wife's very aware when I do this, I'll just sort of saddle up to her in conversation like, Man thinking about Sean Spicer today and she's like oh this is material you know yeah. and then I'll be like blah 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 and she'll just be like "Bubba, blah 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 and I'm like oh that's good and then I just sort of walk away and she and not realize and then I say it on stage as if oh I thought of that like yeah. as if you know sometimes it's comments we take things from other people in conversation sure. like because you're not a comedian you're not going to use that shit so <laughs> I, I sort of do that to my wife but she's like I'm doing those things on purpose I'm not just a random person who said a random funny thing yeah. I, I'm actually helping your writing process so, yeah, so there's... She has several. And then she has jokes that she, she's like, yeah, we have to sort of negotiate how I do them sometimes. Uh, what does that mean exactly? Her, her mother... My mother-in-law is not really excited about being in jokes. Okay. Like, my mom thinks it's awesome when she's in jokes. My dad thinks it's awesome. Like, my mom's favorite joke that I ever told about her was it shit. And that's the end of the round. Uh, <laughs>
0: it's,
2: it's every, every British thing is a game show. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So my, uh, my, my mom's favorite joke that I ever told about her was a joke about her stabbing somebody in a movie theater. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you whether it's true or not. <laughs> and so my mom would like tell her friends, he has this joke about me stabbing somebody in a movie theater. My wife's mom saw that joke and was like, his mom must be so embarrassed. And I was like, no, she tells everybody. <laughs> And so there's areas of, like, family jokes where I have to be sort of, like, circumspect about how I tell them, how they come off. I'll add lines to make sure it's clear that I'm not mad at these, you know, that this is, you know. So there are jokes that, like, I have to sort of go, this is really funny, can I say it, you know, and so... Sometimes she says yes, and sometimes she says no, and sometimes she said no, and I said them anyway, and had to deal with the consequences. And there's sometimes I'm on stage doing jokes like the other night. Maybe Laszlo said something like, "Yeah, I'm only, I'm not going to be saying that too many more times like that. Mm-hmm. Right. I went, I've gone too far. It's hilarious, but I don't want to have to deal with the consequences."
0: Your uh, your material about raising your daughters, and your not just your material, but also in interviews that that I've read about your. Um, your decision or your, your confusion as to exactly when to tell your daughters that racism exists or that race exists.
2: Well, race they know because ra- it's fun to talk about race because race is like, you know, you can talk about like America's first black president. That's race, you know, or, or like uh, America's first self-made woman who was a millionaire was a black woman. Like that's race. Racism is up, it's hard. Yeah. And so my six year old, is aware of the racism discussion because when she was four we really entered into it luckily there's now you go to amazon.com and go racism books for kids
0: <laughs> so you can do that or you can't
2: do you that? can do that you no, can i did that okay so I, I did like books on racism for kids and it's like there's a, a kid's book about uh uh about harriet tubman uh you know like a kid a biography of harriet tubman that was great so we—it's like a ten-page book about <laughs> a picture book about Harriet Tubman. That's like, and then she was a slave, and a slave was somebody who could be sold like a sack of potatoes, which is what it literally says. And it's like, mm. so then we annotate it. It's a little more complicated than that, Sammy. You know, but it was a way that we could get into the racism discussion without me feeling like. I had to have all the words. It's the same thing as the trans thing. I, it's better for me to get in, have somebody else sort of have me sort of start it with this book, and then and then go into it without, and then without me having to be worried that I have to come with all the words. This person came with some words. I can correct their words, or I can be excited they have words, but at least we have some words. Yes. Yeah. And so my two and a half year old is not. You know, she's two and a half. She's just trying to hit things and eat things she shouldn't eat so it's not there yet. But.
0: And will you, will you try to mimic what you did with your older daughter in terms of the, the timing of when to have those conversations? Do you feel you got that right? That you'd want to do...
2: I mean I, I think so. I mean she was four. When she was four, when Sammy was four, we had a thing happen where it felt, made us feel like we needed to talk to her about it now. And so a little bit I feel like we probably should have started at three is how I felt about it. So I thought Juno's two and a half. Not really aware, I don't think necessarily of the racial difference. I think with Sammy, at one point, she sort of realized she was like, My skin is darker than mama's skin. Uh, Juno hasn't done any of that. Her skin's actually around mama's color right now, so, uh, which is a whole other thing we got to figure out. Color <laughs> But yeah, so we have it. So I do think we would start earlier with Juno than we do with Sammy.
0: And we were we talked before about your strengths and weaknesses as a comic. One of the things you
2: you talked about. We're really was, go down this weakness hole, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really I said I didn't. Yeah. Um,
0: I'm interested in whether you have got what you wanted from comedy, from from the comedian you imagined being as. I mean, when did you first know that you wanted to be a comedian?
2: Uh, probably when I was five or six. Yeah. Really? Yeah. That's yeah.
0: astonishingly young. What was the? I'm trying What's to think, the okay, background so I'm to
2: that? Born in 73, five or six, I'd have been 78. Yeah, because Saturday Night Live was on. Yeah, so I, when I was aware there was a thing called S, Saturday Night Live. Okay. Okay, and I was really young. I mean, I've, I can I can quote all the old sketches from the first years of Saturday Night Live. You know, I think Eddie Murphy was kind on of time like, like eighty, eighty-one. That was when I was like, oh, yeah, Eddie Murphy. <laughs> we're, we're really doing this, aren't we? Yeah. yeah, we really are, yeah. Less Eddie Murphy applause than Bill Hicks applause. That's a, yeah. No, that's, I'm not. <laughs> I saw what you did there. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm really, really, really noticing. I'm just noticing. Uh, so, what uh, So... Eddie Murphy on SNL. I mean, he was 19. I was a child, but he looked like me, you know, in a way that, like, Garrett Morris hadn't looked like me. So I was a (laughs) real... Garrett Morris. (laughs) Now we're just going to be doing it every time, you know, like, uh... I was going to name up some UK comedian. I can't think of his name. Uh, Michael McDonald. But, uh... Michael Michael McDonald. Oh, never mind. (laughs) I, I pay attention to things. Uh... Uh, so, I was trying to think of that guy, the, the guy who's got, like, the the plumber guy. who's the plumber, the, the landlord guy. Murray, the pub landlord. Al Murray, the pub oh, landlord. there we go. But Look at that you shit. Know, you know, the Look plumber guy. Shit. The plumber right. guy. I just thought it was something... All
0: right, we've done this joke.
2: <laughs> um, so, Eddie Murphy on SNL, like, clearly, heads and shoulders above everybody else except Joe Piscopo, which nobody forget, remembers. But eddie murphy was like and then he does like delirious and then you know it's like one of the first vhs tapes i ever got i remember seeing seinfeld on the tonight show with johnny carson so when seinfeld got his tv show i had like been following him for like 10 years <laughs> you know i was like good for that guy finally getting something yeah <laughs> hope it works out for him uh he was number one on the forbes comedian list yesterday uh so you know like there's all this like i was just a I was at the same time that every other black kid my age was obsessed with hip hop, I was obsessed with comedy, okay and, yeah
0: and and, yeah. and what did you imagine getting from comedy and and did you get what you wanted?
2: I, I, mean, don't, I don't mean in terms of like material I was just say yeah no, um I mean part of it is that there's a star and fame and all that kind of stuff. you can't really go into this without Uh, wanting some of that. Not everybody's Daniel Kitson. I keep, I keep rolling with these. (laughs) Uh, but yeah, you can't, that's in there because it is about being famous and being rich. You know what I mean? So there, I'm not going to try to say like it was all the artistic thing. I think this is the, but it was about wanting to be a comedian. I mean, in some level, well, I think when I started, I thought I was going to be, well, no, I know, I thought I was going to be even more successful than I am now. Like, I thought, cause I might, I was basing it on the Eddie Murphy model. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, like, I thought, well, I'll do that and then I'll do some movies where they'll just hand me a script and say improvise and I'll just go do that. And so, I, so, but, but I, and so yes, in some level, the kid who thought he was going to be a comedian, no, I'm nowhere near as, I didn't get out of comedy what I thought I was going to get. But, grown-up who sort of grew into it, sort of understanding how it works, and actually what I wanted to say and how, and accepting the fact that I'm not everybody's comedian, being totally okay with that, I feel far. I feel, I feel really this is going to sound pretentious, but I feel really blessed for where I am, considering how long it took me to get here and where I came from.
0: Okay. When you said, when... <laughs>
2: And I it's know. Pretty, it's pretty
0: North American around here.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I And I mean that in a, as non secular way as possible. I'm not saying that in any sort of like, but I mean, I, you know, we need to have that discussion too. But I just really feel like there's a sense of being like, it, 10, 12 years ago, I came to New Faces, 2005. I fucking ate shit like I didn't I, I came here without a manager and agent I left without a manager and an agent I was in the bar doing laps nobody ever stopped me <laughs> you know? yeah. just for
0: the sake of anyone who may be listening to this who uh, may one day come here and do new faces and eat shit what was what was that like how did you cope with that mentally? Like when you've got, you know, you're finally doing the thing you've wanted to do for 30 years. You're at, you know, you're at one of the, the pinnacle points along the way. One of the opportunities, one and of those moments where the world goes, well, it could be now.
2: Yeah, and I was also not as new as the other new... I was like 32, so I wasn't like, you know, everybody else is 25. So I, wasn't, I felt like I had just gotten in, like under the wire. And so I sort of assumed again, like, oh, I'll go do new faces, get a get an agent, move to L.A., told people in San Francisco, yeah, I'll be moving to L.A. soon. So, you know, you guys... <laughs> You can have my spots, uh, and so, and then to do to in the like two minutes into your like I don't know five or seven seven minute new faces to go, "Oh, this is not going well," <laughs> and then it's like, do I do different jokes, do I change it up do, it was also like that thing you know. And then four minutes in, like, oh, my God. Okay, let me win him back. I'm not winning him back. And my dad and my stepmom were there. And so you're also, like, eating shit in front of family that you you have to have dinner with later. Uh, Why wasn't it working? I wasn't a good enough comedian. This is what the moral of this is. I'm not very good. <laughs> like, I would. I don't know that I would do well at new faces now. If they just sort of brought me up, I think I still might eat shit. You know. Uh, as I, the thing about me and that I've learned this, and it's not a good way to be. I'm not. I'm not a good short set comedian. I don't do a yeah. lot of sets on TV. I, you know, I did the gala the other night, and it drove me fucking crazy. You know. It, in fact, tr- like when they offered me the gala, they said you can do a bunch of hour sets you can do your podcast and you can do the gala. I was like, can I get out of the gala? <laughs> and that's not something that people are supposed to say. They're like, yay. But sure. Like, yeah.
0: So what, so in, you were backstage before that gala having, when you said drove you crazy, like you were planning what material to do. Do you have a, do you, are you able to look at your, uh, your hour and go, okay, these are the most gala
2: friendly short bits, or these are the no. bits where I can get myself across in a short time. No, uh Here's the problem. Here's the thing that drove me crazy about Montreal, even back in the day. I feel like I should have come to Montreal like two months earlier and done sets in Canada just to understand how you people talk. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like it was really like, why are we making this so hard? <laughs> my big spot, my big set of shows is in another country, and I talk a lot about American politics or whatever, a race, American racism. I wasn't a comedian prepared. Do- I didn't know how to translate it, so. You know, I like the set I submitted to the gala. I hope I'm not getting anybody in trouble. I wrote down a set. they like, you have to write a transcript down, which I don't know any comedian who wants to write down their jokes Mm -hmm. and look at them. Uh, Like, just you know, so like I wrote them down. I sent them in. I did a warm up set. I ate shit three nights ago at the warm up set. uh, You know, and then like my wife was there, and then we I just proceeded to walk around Montreal, just like maybe it's over, Uh, (laughs) which is a thing I feel quite often. Uh, Maybe it's uh, over. We've
0: just gone past the forty minute mark.
2: We could have started here. Uh, <laughs> wish my wife was here. She'd have a lot to say. But so, and then like sort of just spent the next like just in my head talking to my wife and sort of like trying to figure out how am I going to, and you know, and then really like writing jokes down, like writing notes down on a piece of paper and then walked out at the gala like still having some sense of like knowing I was going to do jokes that I didn't do, that I didn't give them a transcript, not wanting to offend them by doing the wrong jokes, but just sort of like having to do. And it went fine. I think it went fine. You know, I think you know. I don't. I mean, you know. Again, I don't think they're like. No comedian has ever had a set on a gala as good as this one. I don't think that happened, but I think it'll blend in. You know? So, <laughs> but yeah, it was. And then, like, and my agent was there, and now my agent knows I'm crazy, which I was trying to keep from her for a long time because she saw me go <laughs> through this whole process. And uh, yeah, so so when I did new face in 2005, t- like I came home and was just like, well. We had a good run. <laughs> this comedy thing was fun. And I sort of slowly, like, to spent the rest of the year, did the Comedy Central set that I thought went really well because I had this awesome joke about how Conley's Rice was ugly. that really killed. Mm. And then 2006 happens. And then 2007, like, I sort of, like I'm like sort of just sort of, and then, to, uh, what was it, 2000, like, for the next three years, I'm sort of, like, just trying to figure it out. And then in 2008, I almost quit. Yeah, I was like, I think I got to quit. And uh, then I sort of like decided to do the thing that has served me is I was like, I went and did a gig, bunch of gigs in Okinawa, Japan. I'm sorry. I'm just talking now.
0: Like, no, no. This is exactly what
2: you're here for. Okay. <laughs> it's like, so probably let him ask a question. I went <laughs> to do a series of gigs in Okinawa, Japan on a military bases, which sounds like the USO, but it wasn't. It's like an independent promoter in Okinawa just bringing comics over. So it's not that USO thing where, you're like, where they're like, thank you for coming to Iraq. Mm-hmm. And really, because we think we could die. It's a bunch of 18-year-olds who are bored in Okinawa because we're not really fighting with them right now. Um, <laughs> we're not really fighting anybody over there. I mean, North Korea, hopefully. Hopefully. Uh, <laughs> if Trump can get it together, uh, but so it's a bunch of bored dudes, and I went over there to do my sort of like sort of half-formed you know social political comedy in front of a bunch of eighteen-year-olds who probably would have preferred uh, you know exotic dancers and jugglers, and it just I was ate my face. We, we had to do, it was ninety-minute show. Me and my friend Kevin Avery went. We we split the show in half, so I would do forty-five. And he would do 45. And the first night, he goes, You go, he goes, You want to go up first? I go, I'll go up first, and you go up second, and then we'll flip every night, you know. So the first night, I go up first, eat shit for 45 minutes. <laughs> he goes up after me, does better, and then he goes, I don't want to go up first. And I go, I don't want to go up second. <laughs> <laughs> and so like every night, I would go up and eat the leather strap for 45 minutes, and then he would go up and he got through it better than I did. And I came back from there, like, I think I'm actually going to quit, because this can't be what I do for a living. And from that, I sort of, like, took some time off and then asked myself at some point, like, started, like, just really got, started reading a lot of stuff about race and racism, read this article, Rolling Stone, it got me upset, and I was like, I want to do something with this, this article I read, but I can't do it in stand-up because it's just too complicated, and then I was like, something happened that was like, well, how would you do it if you, if you didn't have to, if you weren't thinking about stand-up, how would you do this, and that's how I wrote my one-man show.
0: And that was the, that was the bell curve. Yeah, the bell
2: curve. Because I saw
0: that show in Edinburgh in like 2011.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was, yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Yeah, <laughs> no, no, I mean, it was great. And I remember, I remember seeing the promotional material for it and going, oh, a person actually talking about something. You know, <laughs> yeah, which yeah. I love. It. I've been there over 20 years. But yeah. it, it, I'm always, it's very intriguing when you go, this person clearly has comedy jobs. They're a professional comedian. And yet it isn't just going to be another show where a person talks about
2: yeah. stuff. Yeah. So that actually, was a show I yeah, wrote. In, 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 in,
0: and, and so the breakthrough for you came when you decided to take the pressure off yourself to necessarily be funny, to, but to, to actually just talk about what you wanted.
2: Well, I still wanted to be funny, but I took the pressure off myself to be funny the way that I thought I was supposed to be funny, in seven-minute increments, you know, it, on stage in nightclubs where people were drunk and I would prefer that I talked about my dick. Yes. Which is nothing wrong with any of that. It's just I think we, maybe now, it's better. There is a very narrow, dif- narrow definition of where stand-up comedy should happen. It should happen in nightclubs. It should happen with alcohol. Uh, it should happen in short bursts and, and there's only these subjects you should talk about. You should talk about a very limited range and you should keep changing topics every few minutes. You know, yes. like I think that's the definition of where, of where, how stand-up comedy happens. It's like, we don't do that with other art forms. And I think it's changing a little bit, but still, there's a sense that if you're a comedian who doesn't go through the comedy club system, that you're not really a real stand-up comedian. Yeah. Where it's not that way with like, you know, like there's lots of different types of jazz. You don't have to go to the same clubs, you know.
0: I wanted to ask about where, what you would like from the next 10 years, um, both, both kind of in terms of like uh, professional achievement and in terms of continuing to improve what, what, you know, what, like artistically artistic satisfaction.
2: I mean, I really would like to make a, I've done, I've done a series of albums and I did my first special year. I would like to make a standup comedy special that felt somehow definitive of my voice. The first one I did, I thought I would like to make a – whether whether it broke through the way other specials break through, I would like to make a special that felt like there it is. You know what I mean? So yeah. Like, and I think that requires me having the time to really put into stand-up, and I've still split between other projects. So I really would like to make something that felt like a definitive statement. I really believe in the fact that comics should leave behind a body of work, you know, uh, that there should be like – you know, that thing with George Carlin where he's like there's just like know, 10, 15 specials or – uh, Chris Rock does it. I feel like so. I really want to. I would like to think that in the next ten years, I've released the definitive special for me, whether or not anybody likes it. <laughs> but it just feels like there it is.
0: And I, I know you suggesting that you, or it, it, I think I'm inferring from that that you, because you have United Shades going on, you've got other projects going on. You, you were saying you're, make, you're making a film that you uh, we talked I'm, about that. In the yeah, I'm, about. I'm
2: directing my first documentary right now
0: um so do you so do you have to weigh up which is most important to you is there a sense with united shades there's momentum that there's another mm -hmm. series that's going so actually the thing you want in terms of stand-up has has to take a back seat for the moment yes because you can't you're not in a position to go i'll put this down and pick it up later. no i mean
2: you know everybody does stand-up i mean for most comedians stand-up is their first love it just doesn't it doesn't provide the best life, you know. And some of that is because the travel is so crazy, and some of that is because the the it's not financially tenable all the time. You know, I'm still a guy like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'll go on the road. <laughs> like we were, this was just, you know, it's an ego check. I was doing Detroit. I hadn't ever really played a up show in Detroit. They booked me into the Fillmore Theater, 1,300 seats. At some point, they're like, we're gonna move it to a smaller place. Mm-hmm. Ended up in a 200 seat venue. You know, like, and I was nominated for two Emmys. You know what I mean? So it's like, and I was like, it's Detroit. Don't they like me there? So there's still not a tenable life necessarily, especially now that I'm married with two kids. But, yes, so at some point I feel like I have to really take the time to say, I'm going to put things aside and really focus on stand-up.
0: And I want to just talk about the documentary, uh, in part to ask about it, and in part also because uh, Hari Kondabolu is a friend of the show, yeah. and I know a co-host of uh, the Politically Reactive podcast with yourself, and he has just released, I found out today, he's just he's launching his movie, his documentary The Problem, is it The Problem of the Trouble? It's the, uh, the I think it's The Problem with Apu. The, the Problem with Apu from The Simpsons. And uh, you can look up a trailer for that, and like me, you will probably find yourself going, "Oh yeah, oh
2: oh, oh god." Oh wait, Hank Azaria is not from India. Yeah. Oh, this is awkward. Yeah. Nor is that accent from anywhere. Oh, yeah. but who's the best character.
0: So, yeah. uh, so you said we were chatting before in the green room. You said that you recently, you and Hari showed each other your film projects. So let's yeah, talk yeah, about we, your we, one. What's yeah. what's your? Uh,
2: I can't talk about it.
0: Oh, you can't talk about, I can't it. Talk okay. about
2: it. Let's talk about you tell us, it. Yeah, you yeah, tell, yeah. Us about, tell us how you you said you kind of gave each other feedback. We both like we both. I was in New York, and so I was like, "Do you want to see some of my? Do you want to see the latest cut of my film?" And He's like, "Yeah." And I was, he's like, "I'll show you mine." And I was like, "All right." And so we, this sounds weird. So we go to our hotels <laughs> to show each other each other's, and uh, and we both ended like, oh, yours is so much better than mine." Like, so he's really the Apu thing is going to if it gets seen because that's a problem in the current era. Things have to get seen is going to really it's it, it's going to make lots of white people uncomfortable which as we talked about earlier is my favorite thing to do sure. so but it really like question really like is a very direct question of, like is this okay you know in the thing and you know and you see I would recommend seeing it you may think it's fine but it is certainly a provocative and very funny and he has a and it's about the idea that a poo is voiced by Hank Azari who's a white guy and he has, like, the, the former Surgeon General, who's an Indian American, is in it talking about how he feels about a poo. Aziz Ansari is in it talking about how he feels about a poo. Like, all the most premier people, Indian, Indian uh, Americans and some British people, all across, Russell's in it, Russell Peters, talking about this thing. And it's like, it really, like, sort of opens you up to, like, first of all, we always think, ra- in America, this is true, racism is a black and white issue literally and so this is like there's a whole there's a whole segment that we just sort of forget because they don't we don't either let them speak or they don't speak up in a way we can hear so it's 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 devastating and hilarious
0: so so we've just probably got time for one or two quick questions if anyone has one over there sir i'll just need to repeat it for the sake of the recording go ahead so, for the Masters of Comedy panel, which you did here at uh, Just for Laughs in Montreal, um, you mentioned that there are other comedians you would have liked to introduce, such as Robin Williams, but he had passed away. So, which other comedians would you have? Who would you have? Uh, who, are alive, who are still alive? So, we know you like Bill Hicks. We know you like. Okay. Bill
2: Hicks. Okay, okay. is this just who else do I like? <laughs> well, I know I that you would have liked to interview. Him. That you would have liked oh, oh, to interview for us. I, uh, I love Mark Maron in a very profound way, even though he's a very broken person. Uh, what is it? That, what specifically is it that you love profoundly about Marin? That he sort of lays himself bare, and but is able to pick up the pieces and make, create a thing for your enjoyment. You know, like because it's not enough just to be like, oh, like you have to be able to like put the pieces together in a way that is comedic. It can be cathartic as a subset of entertainment. So I think that, and I also think that Mark inspired me like early on like if you don't have to make it when you're 22 and mark has been around forever but the fact that he was able to chart his own path has always been very inspiring to me and also he's a guy and we talked about this last time i was on this podcast that i've i've called a couple times in my life when i needed some good advice and he has always picked up the phone so i would love to i would love to interview mark maron properly but i don't know it's going to happen thank you very much for your question any others before we wrap up Oh, what?
0: oh! I, sorry, I alluded. I think the is <laughs> alluding to the fact that earlier I alluded to the Sean Spicer sperm joke, yes. and uh, I believe you're asking for it to be performed now <laughs> in, in a in a non gig environment and in I'm front sitting of in a chair,
2: cold, calm in t- front of nine thousand people.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so I'll say it in a very sort of like I just uh, Sean Spicer seems to me. Like, he is composed of the bare minimum amount of smurp, sperm that it takes to make a human being. <laughs> so that when the I sp-
0: love the way you threw in the deliberate sperm there, yes, to just so yeah. that it would take the momentum yeah, out and we could my, analyze yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, good.
2: That's very pro. Yeah, that's, that's basically a joke. So the sperm's just like... It mm, just barely touches the egg. <laughs> As like a weak high-five that's all fingers. <laughs> and they're just like, I guess that's enough. Let's try to make a human being out of this. <laughs> That's how we get Sean's Spicer. He did better last night at the Bombing Mike show.
0: Yeah. They were like sperm. Yeah, 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 yeah. We we can do that. Uh, any others? Any one final question? There's one over there. Yes, Arby. This is from Arby, a comedian and a producer from Belgium. Um, and uh, is there a particular? Uh, what was the question? Like a, a blueprint or a, a particular approach as a non-white comic for making racially related comedy?
2: I think you have to decide what you want out of the response from the joke. I think you have to decide, do you want people to like laugh? Like, do you, are you trying to invite them into understanding? Or are you trying to challenge them into realizing? You know what I mean? Like, I think that you have to really decide, like, which, because sometimes I do want a joke that makes people go, oh my God, I didn't realize how similar we were. And sometimes I want to be like, oh my God, why would you say that? You know, you have to really, I think, you know, going into the joke, and those can both elicit laughter, but it's different types of laughter. And sometimes it's a laughter, like, holy shit, I never thought of that. So I think you have to really decide, what you want what you're trying to comedy is just a communication device I mean, I think that's really at its base it's just it's just a way to communicate, and the thing is with comedy, you know people are understanding you and they laugh it doesn't mean they agree with you, it just means they understand what you said so for me, it's like that's a part of it knowing what am I trying to communicate to this person, and a part of this, how do I expect them to react from this? so you're not just like throwing them out there like seeing what happened you know you're sort of like it's, it's, when you start in comedy, you are doing that, but eventually you have to be sort of you know target shooting you know.
0: Thank you very much. Excellent question. Excellent answer. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got like, okay, we've got 30 seconds. Go. Do you ha- are you influenced by Richard Pryor? Do you have any influence from him? Did I mean, Richard
2: from- Pryor was a part of like the wallpaper of black people when I grew up. So it was just like Martin Luther King Jr., Richard Pryor, Motown. So it's all in there somewhere because it was just a part of being black in America in the 70s. I remember my mom had a Richard Pryor record, Bicentennial Nigger. Uh, that, had, that said nigger on the cover so like this is for grown ups <laughs> I remember one day I kept telling my mom I'm going to put it on the record player and she's like no it's not for you I'm going to put it on the record player When she's like go put it on the record player and I just remember putting it on the record player and whatever he said within like 15 seconds I was like
3: ah and I turned it off
2: because <laughs> it was like this is not for me I'm not ready the thing that I take from Richard that I don't do as well as he did is the vulnerability like you have to be the thing that he people uh, like uh, like think he's great for the profanity and the like the street tales but it's really I think the vulnerability is what set him apart so I try to to lean into vulnerability
0: thank you very much ladies and gentlemen please join me in thanking W Kamau Bell thank you thank you So that was Kamal. Thank you very much to him for coming along the show. If you're in the States or online or so inclined to wrangle YouTube in this way, you can see a couple of full episodes online, I think, wherever you are in the world uh, of United Shades of America. Do track down Kamal's stand-up. He is an excellent, very engaging stand-up. And as we talked about, he's not just the political stuff. He's very good on on personal stuff as well and and finding the blend, finding the mix between the two. Um, A real pleasure to talk to him and uh, I look forward to seeing what he does Next, he's, he's one of those people who, I mean, I, I first saw him doing the, the W. Kamau Bell Curve, ending racism in one hour at Edinburgh, maybe as far back. Now, what was it? 2011, something like that. Um, and some of the people. Oh, I mean, this is a, a perfect segue. It's so exciting to see someone at a festival and then years later, catch up with them, see what they did next. Um, this year, I have seen so many excellent shows here. I mean, I've been very—I've had to be necessarily. The Boutros and uh, and the misses have been up here uh, with me the whole month and living in a, a house seemingly filled to the brim with toddlers. But. Um, Uh, I have managed to see a small number of very specifically chosen shows, including people like Julio Torres. Have a look at his have a look at his Tumblr, Space Prince Julio or some of his videos online. He writes for SNL and uh, he also is a phenomenal and very accomplished Very, I mean, he's forged out of willpower. I can't wait to bring you that one—a brilliant stand-up. And Sean Patton, we've also got from uh, uh, from the Edinburgh Festival this time. I've got episodes with Joe Caulfield, Sarah Kendall, both absolutely superb episodes. Zoe Coombs-Mar, who did one of the most, does some of the most exciting commentary on comedy whilst being comedy um, that I think I've ever seen. Uh, Those are all in the can from Montreal. We still have Sugar Sammy, uh, Lisa Traeger, someone who's making waves in America at the moment she's uh, a very exciting comic and uh, Sashir Zamata as well and I feel like there's someone else Kay Trevor Wilson just brilliant so I'm coming back to you with uh, and and of course Anne Edmonds which I still not got round to from uh, releasing uh, from Melbourne earlier this year and Maybe even someone else from Melbourne. I can't remember who, but maybe someone else. And then Joe DeRosa from last year's Edinburgh, the the missing episode. I've tracked it down and it's coming your way soon. So just bundles of really exciting international acts coming your way and a couple of uh, homegrown heroes as well. And congratulations to Hannah Gadsby and uh, John Robbins, both friends of the show who uh, shared the main uh, meaningless, non-existent comedy award that is nonetheless useful for them. I'm sure. Um, so, congratulations to them. With a with a general kind of, uh, come on, guys. There's no such thing. But, uh, <laughs> but um, I'm very pleased to see so many excellent shows get recognised, both in a quasi official capacity and just uh, from people talking about them in the street. Because it all means the same, right? Right. So no post-amble this week, Uh, I will give you a a full debrief next week and tell you about all the fun things uh, I got up to, including a live clown class uh, with Dr. Brown that I participated in, and also, um, what was the other, oh God, I did man-watching as well, which I'll tell you all all about it, I've had an incredible month and I'll tell you all about it, but uh, for now let's just all have a lovely sleep unless we're driving or in the bath or running. But I know some of you do listen to this to get to sleep. Someone wrote me a charming email about how it's not that the show isn't interesting. It's just that there's some quality to the conversation. Maybe all the pauses, they put it better than I can. I'll read really that next week. So um, if you're able to go to sleep, let's all go to sleep. And if you're not, do keep your eyes on the road. I'll speak to you next week.